I'd like to welcome all of you here. Thank you for being here on a Wednesday night. And uh, we're going to study grace tonight. And really, we're going to study two parts of grace. One will be the easy part, talking about common grace. And then after talking about common grace, we'll jump into saving grace, or you might say specific grace, or some would call this the doctrine of election and reprobation. But how does God work in salvation? So we'll talk about common grace that we see around us. Uh, that'll be pretty easy for most of us to get through. Never had to really wrestle that. And then go into what does the Bible say about how God's grace works in salvation. So let's begin. Uh, everybody, have, everybody have a handout? Okay. If you don't have a handout, our chairman and deacons back there with a ZZ Top beard would be glad to help you uh, at any point. Anybody need, anybody need the handout? You also notice uh, that I have tried to put most of the passages, the scripture passages, on the handout. So you have them in front of you if you didn't bring a Bible. And uh, you'll, you'll see that uh, my rendition of the handout is substantially more beneficial than Mike's. Let's pray and get started. Father, we celebrate your grace the common grace you give us that we see all around us. We thank you for the specific saving grace of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that tonight as we look at the Bible, as we think about you and how you work, that our hearts would be turned to gratitude. Father, may we give you thanks. Give us grateful hearts for the grace you've given us. Grace is to be celebrated to, to find joy in that. And so, Father, I pray that tonight we might do that as you speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's start off tonight with, um, with common grace. Let's talk about common grace. Common grace is the universal favor that God grants to all people. I have all believers here, but all people. I don't know why yours says all believers. Scratch that out. It should say that common grace is the... Oh, I know why it says it, because in my notes I got it here. That's not right. Common grace, is, uh, common grace is the universal favor that God grants to all people. You got that? Although grace, normally when we talk about grace, grace is normally associated with the mighty act of God in salvation. You know the song, we're saved by grace, Right? Uh, the amazing grace of God. We normally are talking about salvation, but common grace is not salvation. Common grace is God showing His favor to all people, whether they are Christians or not. Let me see if I can say it another way. Common grace is different from saving grace. Saving grace is God's specific favor granted to us in Jesus, and that is for salvation. Right? That's saving grace. Common grace is something different. Common grace is seen in at least, I would say, at least seven functions. Now, I'm going to mention seven things. You will be able to come up with other things. You'll be saying, what about this? Uh, here's a picture of common grace. It's good for you to do that. Let me just sort of point out seven things from the Bible that give us a picture of God's common grace. The first one would be um, the creation, God's creation, and then, and then more specifically, God creating man in his image. Do you have Genesis 1 there? Let me read 
not just creation, which is Genesis 1-1, but let's get to God creating man in his image in Genesis 1, verses 26 and following. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves. So what you have there, if you want to write it in Latin, it would be the Imago Dei, the image of God. Common grace that God has given to all people, whether they're Christians or not. The common grace is He has made every single person in His image, which has implications for us. If everybody is made in the image of God, that means that we have a certain obligation because of that to treat people with respect and dignity regardless of who they are because they are made in God's image. That is a function of common, not specific, common grace. Let me give you another attribute of common grace. It's number two there on your handout. That is God's physical provision to sustain life. What God does here on earth to sustain life for all people. You probably have it there, Matthew 5. Remember what Jesus said, Matthew 5, 45? So that he's saying you are to love people that are your enemies and also that are your friends, so that you are sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the rain, I'm sorry, he makes the sun to rise on evil and good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So if you're having good weather, that good weather is not just for believers, right? That good weather is for everybody. If you go on Facebook uh, right now, you can go and maybe some of your friends might be on a cruise. Uh, maybe they're at the beach. Connie likes the beach a lot. She has a friend that, that uh, is at the beach a good bit, is always sending pictures back to Connie. As if to make her jealous, she, she ought to be at the beach. You can go and see even people on Facebook that are Maybe you're not friend. Even people that are not Christians, that are hateful people, if they go to the beach, the same sun is going to shine on them. It's common grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. And what Jesus is saying there is that is a picture of God's goodness in all of creation. We can all walk out of here. Good people, bad people, Christians, non-Christians, and around us, God's provision is for everybody. Right? That's common grace. Let me give you a third thing to consider. Common grace, um, and a good place for this is uh, in Genesis 4. Common grace blesses us with the ability to carry out our responsibility to build a society. Let me say it again. Common grace, God blesses us with the ability to carry out our specific responsibilities that contribute to the building of society. So that you, if you are good with numbers, that is common grace. God has given that to you, not because you are a good Christian, but because He is a good God. There are lots of doctors that perform 
great works that God uses, and they are not Christian doctors, but through common grace, God has given them the ability to learn the right things and then to execute it. You follow me with that, right? Uh, a good place to see that is in Genesis 4, where um, the first children are born. Somebody's phone going off here. Is that a doorbell? The first children are born, and those first children, Adam and Eve, have Cain and Abel. And look what, um, look what Eve says. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and she gave birth to Cain. And this is what she said. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, here comes common grace again. Abel's a keeper of the sheep. Cain is a worker of the ground. So common grace in producing children, right? It's not just Christian people that get married and have children. People that are not believers in, in Jesus will have healthy, happy babies, and the baby will come into this world, and everything will go great. That is, that is common grace. Uh, I have here building, building cities in Genesis 4. Did I put that down? Genesis 4, 16 and 17. Oh, yeah, I did. Good. Maybe I'll just teach all of this. Genesis 4, 16 and 17. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Remember, he killed Abel, put a mark on him. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He settled in the land of Nod, that's east of Eden. Cain knew his wife. She conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city. He called the name of the city of his, of his son, Enoch. So Cain, although he's out of the presence of God, he still has the ability to build. You keep reading, you have other folks down in Genesis 4, 20 and 21, uh, people that are playing instruments, that are fashioning things, that are artisans. All of those are gifts of common grace. So whatever occupation you have, God has given you that ability, not because you are a believer, but because of His good common grace that He gives to all people over all the earth, that they are able to contribute in some way to building or being a part of society. That is common grace. Well, let's go to the inside of people. I think it's the fourth one here. The human conscience. The fact that we have a conscience is God's common grace. You don't have to be a Christian to have a conscience. Right? All of us know, you should know people that are not believers that happen to be a really nice guy. He's got a, a conscience. So what does the text say in Romans 2? Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, Paul writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, okay, they don't have the law of God that's going to direct them, they don't know what is right and wrong according to the Ten Commandments, they do not have the law, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Here's what they're showing. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts either accuse them or excuse them. So common grace is, he gives people conscience. By common grace, people know the basic principles of right and wrong. That is God's common grace that He's given us, that we live in a society of people that may or may not be Christians, and yet in the society, most people 
have an, an innate sense of what is right and what is wrong. And when someone transgresses against that which is wrong or that which is right, we know that it's not right. That is the conscience that God has given us through common grace. I'll give you a fifth thing. The structure of the family. The structure of the family is a product of common grace. Do you see Ephesians uh, 3, verse 14 and 15? This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, so God, God the Father, from whom, it is from Him, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. God has established, whether you live in America, you live in another part of the world, whether you've never heard the name of Christ, God has established that one of the pieces of common grace is family. Mother and a father, children. In fact, it, it, there's, an, there's an empty sense when, when, uh, when family is gone, even uh, the psalmist says it for us, Psalm 68, verse 5, that our God, He is the Father of the fatherless, He is the protector of widows, is our God in His holy habitation. So, so He fills in where pieces of the family are gone. That is common grace. The desire to have a family, the love for your children, you don't have to be a Christian, a Christian to actually love your children. Bad people love their children too, right? People that, that do not profess the name of Jesus have affection for their spouses or for their children. That is a means of common grace. God has put that in us, and that is there to establish that function, that order, that affection. And when that family is broken, you don't have to be a Christian to feel like a, a family being broken is a terrible thing. You just have to be a human. That is common grace. I'll give you something else. You're not going to believe this. It's number six. I hated to even write it. Is that government? Right? Government is a product of common grace. You say, where in the world? Well, I didn't put it on, the, on your sheet. But it's in Romans chapter 13. You uh, probably can put it up on, um, on the screens. I'll go to Romans chapter... We're going to be in Romans for a little bit um, here in a minute anyway. But listen to what Paul says about government and it being something that God has given us. You ready? Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God... And those that exist have been instituted by God. God did this. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now that is a mouthful about the government. But, I mean, God has given us a government so that there's order. We don't want to live in anarchy. God has put... Um, He's given us a police force that, that restrain evil, right? Hopefully that's what they're doing. That when someone breaks in, I had a, I had a break in in our neighborhood, we are just talking about it, and if that happens, then we're going to call the police to come investigate it. That is put there by the government. If, if my house is burning, we want the fire department to come and try to put it out. That is there for our protection. God has given common grace around the world whether it's in the United States, Europe, wherever, there you have a government as a means of common grace. Okay, so that's six things about common grace. There are other pieces of common grace as you probably can think of. Anybody want to mention something you think, a, a picture of God's common grace that I didn't mention? Good, all right. Maybe I covered them all. Common grace is given to us for a reason. Why does God do this? Well, I think that the seventh number, there's a right response to common grace. There's a response that unbelievers should have. There is a response that believers should have. You'll find it uh, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. What is the right response to common grace for unbelievers? Romans 2, verse 4. Paul writes, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So God's common grace and all of his activities, the things that he does, especially for unbelievers, all of these pieces of common grace are put there to lead someone that is an unbeliever to turn from their sin and put their faith in Jesus. So common grace is there to lead us to specific grace. I'll get to that in a minute. Common grace is what God uses as He brings people to a saving faith in Jesus. In fact, I would go far, so far to say that common grace really um, is not any good for someone if they don't come to saving grace. You can find that in Romans 1, probably. One, uh, we'll get to that in the next few weeks. So Romans 1 says that you know that there's a God by creation, and even though you know that, you turned from that God and worshipped, created things instead of the Creator. So, so common grace, a person knew there's a God that did this, that's common grace, but that common grace didn't lead them to the specific grace of Jesus. And so if common grace... I hope I'm not being confusing. If common grace doesn't lead you to faith in Christ, then it sends you to hell. Right? I mean, so it makes you aware. Common grace is a tough thing. It is a beautiful thing in the hand of God, bringing us to Christ. Common grace points us to specific grace in Jesus. The right response to God's kindness and common grace 
is to turn and put your faith in Christ. So that's the right response for an unbeliever. There's also a right response for believers. I tacked it on at the end of of 1 Timothy. It really should be just 1 Timothy chapter 4 and really just verse 4. I sometimes will include more verses so you have context. But really verse 4. Paul writes, Everything for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So societal structures, God's provisions, His gifts to us, His abilities, the way He has provided for us. Yesterday, my son, Nate, texted me. Uh, his clutch went out in his car. He's got a 1996 little Acura Integra. It's got like 250,000 miles on it. I don't know. It's worn completely out. <clears throat> but his clutch went out, and so, of course, uh, I'm still on the hook for that. So he texts me, hey, my clutch is out. What do I need to do? So I go and to his school because he's got to get to work. He's already called his boss. He's going to be a little bit late. And so I go to school, pick him up, and call a wrecker to come get the car. So in order for him to be able to leave work and, and, and get back to school, he has to have my car. So he takes my car. I, that means that I am without a car. Well, I got a 1979 Jeep CJ5. You might see it out there out back. It's like, it's like driving a tent down the road. And that's what I'm stuck in right now because you, you know the sequence of events. But you know what I start? I, I was preparing for this. And you start looking at things. God, thank you for the provision. I have something I can drive. Thank you for the rain that's fallen. Thank you for the person that has criticized me. That, that's made me aware of this shortcoming in my life, even though they didn't mean it for something nice. It's been helpful to me. You start thanking for the common graces that God gives us every single day that you don't think about. Common grace is there to remind us of the goodness of God in all things. To remind us to give thanks to God in all things. Common grace. Well, now, let's move from common grace to specific saving grace. The grace that we preach about in church, the grace that we believe that, that it takes for someone to go from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. Saving grace is something completely different than common grace. Common grace is all people everywhere. Saving grace is specific. It starts in the Old Testament. We won't reach all the way back, but from the very beginning... You hear God talk about His people as God's chosen people. I'm reading through uh, the Pentateuch now. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I'm almost through Deuteronomy. Using that reader's Bible, there are no chapters and no verses in it. Uh, So it reads like a story. And over and over again, you hear God talk about His people as His chosen people not because they were greater than any nations, not because there was anything about them that made him want to look at them. They were weaker than Egypt, and yet he did that to show his mercy and kindness so that it became less about Israel and more about him. That's how God worked in the Old Testament. Bring that forward to the New Testament. That's how God works in saving grace. But to understand grace, you've got to understand sin. 
And so let's talk about the doctrine of reprobation. The doctrine of reprobation. Not something you walk around talking about very much. Nobody's going to get a shirt that says, I'm a reprobate. You know, nobody's going to talk about it very much. It is something to be aware of. The doctrine of reprobation. Let me see if I can explain it in a way that uh, is helpful. Well, before I explain it, think with me about total depravity. There's another thing you don't put on a T-shirt very much. Reprobation, total depravity. Total depravity is not that we are as bad as we possibly can be. Total depravity is this. My sin has affected every part. I'm totally affected by it. All of me is affected by my sin. Right? That's what total depravity is. That all of who I am is affected by sin in some way. So I am saturated with sin. So most of us here as Christians, we believe that we are sinners born into this world with a sinful nature. We make sinful choices. I'm going to point that out in a moment. And all that has to go on for us not to go to heaven, God only has to leave us to our own devices in the case of reprobation. For, for us to go to hell, for me to go to hell, all that has to go on is for God to leave me alone and leave me to my own decision-making and my own life choices. When that happens, this is why we pray for lost people, right? That if, that if God doesn't do something, they're going to hell. So the doctrine of reprobation is this. Left to our own devices because of our sinful nature, we will ultimately perish. It's a heavy, a heavy doctrine. Let's see if we can back it up with the Bible. Okay, let's talk about total, total depravity. Total depravity. A good place to go for that is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. Remember, total depravity is not that you are as bad as you possibly can be. That's not total depravity. You certainly are not as bad as you possibly can be right now. You're sitting here very nice, being kind. You probably can be a whole lot worse than what you're being now. Total depravity is that there's not a part of you that's not affected. Listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Hear the language. And you were dead. There's a bad, I want to circle it. You were dead. What were you dead in? You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It's past tense. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then it describes that. You followed the course of this world. So what, what does he mean, the course of this world? This present age, what's going on in our world right now. Uh, New York just made it legal to have abortions all the way up to the point of birth. So we live in a world that, that the value of life is going one way and the understanding of human sexuality is going the other way. And so Paul's saying, here's what you, you followed the course of the world you were in. You were dead in sin and trespasses. You followed the course of this world. In fact, he, he, he defines it even further there in verse 1 and 2. In which you once walked, followed the course of this world, you followed the prince of the power of the air. So you see these stacking up what sin is like. You're dead in sin. That is sin and trespasses. You followed the course of this world. You followed what's going on with Satan. You followed Satan. That's the spirit that's now working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all want to live. How did we live? We lived in the passions of our flesh. 
we, we carried out the desires of the body and the mind, and here's the terrible exclamation point. And we were, before Christ, we were by nature children of wrath. So children that deserve the wrath of God. We were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So you take verses 1, 2, and 3, and what you find there is that all of mankind without Christ is in this condition. So that every person that's ever been born is born in this world with a sinful nature, and then because of that sinful nature commits sin. The doctrine of reprobation is this. If God doesn't intervene, and you already believe this, if God doesn't intervene, then that ultimately leads to hell. What does Jeremiah say? Do you have it in front of you? Jeremiah 17, 19 and 10 about the heart. That the heart is desperately sick of all things. Who can understand it? Or, or, or Romans, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Do you have that? Yeah. Where did I, I stopped providing for you in Ephesians, right? Did I? Yeah. But I gave you Romans. Romans 3, verses 10 and 11. As it is written, none is righteous as it is written. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So to, to rightly understand grace, we've first got to understand the condition that we're in. And the best phrase, it, we reach all the way back to the 1500s, is the phrase total depravity that says, every part of me is affected by sin, even if you're a nice person. And that sin has made it so that we are dead, that our heart is sick, that we are children of wrath. We are not any better than the rest of mankind. So that's the condition that all people are in. It's important to get that right so that we understand grace. Because if you don't get that right, if you don't believe in total depravity, if you believe that people are basically good, then you don't really need grace. If you're basically good, you can actually just be better. Just work harder. Grace, to, to understand grace, you've got to understand sin. So we've got that. I've given you three or four passages there. So now let, let's talk about salvation by grace. If we are going to be saved, if it's going to happen, if we're going to be saved, then God must intervene. Everybody with me on this? If we're dead, something has to happen to make us alive. If we're children of wrath, something has to happen to change us into children of God. The doctrine of reprobation, if God doesn't intervene, we're going to hell. Grace says God has intervene. Go to Ephesians 2. So let's pick it up again. So we, we went from verses 1, 2, and 3. That's where all the bad stuff is, right? You, you see the phrase, I've, I've said it a bunch of times on Sunday mornings. You see the, the phrase in verse 4? Anybody know the, the phrase that's the gospel? But God. But, but God is the gospel. But God is the gospel. God is the gospel. We were dead, but God. That's the gospel. So let's go through it. What did he do? Verse 4, but God. Okay, so now we're talking about God. We're talking about us. 
But you have it up here? But God, look at the description of God. But God, who is rich in mercy, so that's our God, He's merciful. God is rich in mercy because of, look, this is why we're saved, because of the great love with which He loved us. This is all about God. Salvation is God working. It is His mercy, it is His love, the great love with which He loved us. And then the camera angle goes back to, to us again. Even when we were dead. You know what the text says? Even when we were dead, how were we dead? In our trespasses and sins, He, God, God did it. He's the one that made us alive together. Here's how, with Christ. And then he puts a parenthesis, just so you get it. It's, it's grace. You see, by grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with Him. What? Yeah, is that the next? What is verse 6? Yeah, verse 6? Christina, come on, verse 6, yeah. Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then, of course, we know verse 8 and 9, but it's important you get that in, in, in stark contrast to being dead. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. This is why. So that none of us can boast. Right? That's, why God, that's why God does it like that. Otherwise it would be a contest. Who would be the best Christian, right? And the answer is only God does that. So that nobody, nobody can boast. Okay, so we have salvation by grace. I'd like to press a little further on, on salvation and deal in some ways with the word predestination and the word election. Uh, most of the time people get nervous about those two words. Do you believe in predestination? Look, I have to believe in it. It's it's in the Bible, Ephesians 1, that's where we'll be for a little bit. So yes, we believe in predestination. Uh, do you believe in election? Don't let the word election uh, scare you, the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election comes from the word, uh, really the Greek word is very similar to election. It's eklektoi. It is the word to choose. So that's really what it means, that it's God doing this. So armed with that, let's talk about salvation and how it works through our triune God. So I'm going to talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. You're going to find most of this in Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can go there. It'll be on the screen. It'll be in Ephesians 1. So how does salvation work? Well, here's the first one. God the Father planned it. God the Father planned salvation. This is where you get the word predestination. Do you believe in predestination? Well, let me ask you, you can raise your hand. Do you believe that God has a plan for your life? Raise your hand high if you believe that. Okay, all of you believe in predestination. You believe that He made a plan and He's executing the plan, right? That is, that is what we do. You go on a trip, make a plan for the trip. In salvation, God has planned it. Let me show you where I get that. It is uh, Ephesians 1 verse 4. Let's start back in verse 3 and come forward. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him. So there's election. Even as He chose us in Him, look when He did it, before the foundation of the world, here's why, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Well, that really that phrase, in love, goes over to verse 5. In love, 
He predestined us for adoption to Himself. So God the Father planned it. He did it out of love. He did it for glory. He did it so we would reflect Him. Our being saved. In fact, if you take verse 5, let's put it back, yeah, verse 5 and go all the way to verse 11. When you read that together, what you find out is that our being saved, you being saved, all of that is rooted in the unspeakable wisdom and plan of God. And if you don't believe that, what happens is it becomes part of your ingenuity and not God's. Look at the unspeakable wisdom of God. Let's just read verse 5 to 11 and let the Bible wash over you and listen to it. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. That's why He did it. According to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, I'll come back to this verse. In Him we have redemption through His blood, that is, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth, Verse 11, so beautiful. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, how? According to the purpose of Him, that's God, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is a, that is a, that is a, a passage of security. That God the Father planned it. Well, let's come down and see how God, what God the Son does. If God the Father planned it, then God the Son has accomplished salvation. You remember the phrase, what is Jesus on the cross before He died? What did He say? Remember? It is finished, right? It has been accomplished. I have done it. In fact, I'll show you a little bit of this. Um, verse 7. Let's go back to chapter 1, verse 7. In Him, that's in Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, that is, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. That is, through His blood. If you go back to verse 3 and 4, you'll see that in Christ we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. So, so follow along. God the Father has planned it. It's the word predestination. God the Son has accomplished it. Now, what does God the Spirit do? Drop down to the third one. God the, Spirit God the Spirit applies that to our hearts, right? Let me show it to you uh, in verse 13 and 14. Verse 13 and 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, so the gospel had to be preached, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So God the Father planned it. God the Son accomplished salvation. God the Spirit applied it. When you heard the gospel, God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit awakened your heart to believe. If you've ever been under conviction, you know what happened. You sensed it and you called out to Jesus and were saved. 
So that's a lot to swallow. Let me give you one last thing. I tricked you here. You see that fourth one? God's plan in salvation creates joy. I gave you a, a lot of space here because I have ten affirmations I'm going to give you. And two questions. I didn't know if I'd get to them. And I want to take it all from Romans chapter 8. Hopefully, uh, you will forget that we talked about this by the time I get to it at the end of the year. I'm preaching, in, uh, starting Romans, and not this Sunday, but the following. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, should be um, one of your favorite verses. But don't divorce verse 28 from the rest of it. It, it should be your favorite, but don't divorce it from verse 29 and 30 and 31. Because they all go together. And you can't claim verse 28 if you don't really give he, uh, credence to verses 29, 30, and 31. So let's read it, and let's, let's talk about the joy in salvation. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Man, isn't that good? So let's go through it quickly. I'm going to give you ten uh, most of these I got from John Stott. Anything he writes, just read it, John Stott. Uh, not all of them, but most of these. What do we know about God? Well, here's the first one. Number one, God works. Verse 28 tells us that it is God working. All things work together. You know who's doing the all things are working? That is God working. That is to say that your life is not random. It is not an accident. You are not walking aimlessly into this world. If you are his child, God is working. That is one affirmation you need to hold on to and believe that regardless of how you feel about it, God is actually working in your life. That is a liberating, joyful affirmation. Here's the second affirmation. Number two, God works for the good of His people. God works for the good of His people. You'll see it right there in verse 28. Let me show it to you. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That is God's people. God has no obligation to work for the good of people that are not His. Right? God is not working for the good of His enemies. God is working for the good of His people. This is a great claim. This is a limiting thing that you can hold on to, that you are viewed differently when you're in Christ. He's working for your good. That is a great and beautiful affirmation. God works for the good of His people. That, that providence is for our good. A smiling providence is for our good. A, a hard providence, when you walk through a difficulty, we trust that it is for our good. He's working all of it for good, right? Here's a third affirmation. Man, I shouldn't sweat so hard on a Wednesday night. you hear me? Good night. I'm making me work tonight. <clears throat> this suit was sitting in the back of the closet and had it out in 15 years. I pulled, put it on this morning. Connie was like, what are you doing? I was like, baby, I think they'll like that suit today. Okay, 
Number four. Okay, relax. <clears throat> Number three. God works for our good in all things. Not just for his people. He works for our good in all things. So all that is negative in this life, all that is negative and painful in this life has a positive purpose in the execution of God's plan that you can't see. So, so let me just, you probably can offer up something and say, well, okay, maybe so, but what about this? Nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that is beyond the overriding, overruling scope of God's providence. There is nothing beyond that. God works for our good in all things, all of them. Remember, we just came off of Genesis. Remember Joseph? All the terrible things that he, and Joseph himself said, God, did, God brought me here. He did it. I mean, you certainly were sinners. It was terrible to sin, but God was working for good. Is, are we at four now? Yeah, number four. God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. You see the text? It's important. Those who love Him. And we know that for those who love God, it's very specific. Those who love God all of them work. That is not a promise that people can claim that do not love God. This is not positive talk for all humanity. This is for God's chosen people, those that are chosen in Christ. For His people, He works for good for those that love Him. It's important we see that. This is a specific promise to you as a child of God. Okay, let me flip the coin over. Number five. Those who love God, right there in verse 28, those who love God are also described as people that are called according to His purpose. You see it? Those who are... See, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. So those who love God are those that have been called according to His purpose. See how the two, they're, they're two descriptors of the very same thing. And God works for those. Okay, let me give you a sixth one. This will be easy. God is omniscient. Omniscient. That's how I spell it. Omniscient. That means to say God knows all things and he knows his people. Get down in there in verse 29. Roll around that just a little bit. For those whom he foreknew. He knows his people. Foreknew is just like it says it in English, beforehand. Knew it before. Ephesians 1 says from the foundation of the world. So God, as, as he who is omniscient, he knows his people. I'll press on that a little further. Not only does God know his people, um, number 7, it's also there in verse 29. Number 7, God has a plan, a very specific plan. You might even put on top of that. God has a plan, and it is a good plan. See what the text says in verse 29? For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, what for? To be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that 
he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, that is a good plan. God's plan is good. His plan in Christ is good. His plan to save you in Jesus is good. So, God has a plan. His plan is good. Let me give you something else. Uh, this is number eight. The eighth affirmation. And that is that the gospel works. The gospel works. It is the powerful call of God. Let me show you where I get that. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, so we talk about the plan, those whom he predestined, he also called. See that word called? That word called is um, the specific call of God. So on Sunday mornings when I stand and preach, I'll, I'll do an exposition of the passage or always have the gospel in it. I'll explain the gospel. That is, my, that is a general call to all people. And then as I explain the gospel, there are specific people where the Spirit of God is moving in their life and it awakens them to believe the gospel. It's the call, the, the call of God. That's, what, that's what's going on here when... When Paul writes this, those whom he predestined, he also called. And if that's the case, you know what that can guarantee you when you're, when you're sharing the gospel with people is that God will move. You, the results are not you. This is God doing it. Your obligation is to make sure you're sharing the gospel. That is how God works. We still have to share the gospel. We have to pray for people to be saved, that the Spirit will awaken them. But it is the gospel that has the power. You know... A good way to picture the gospel and how it works. One of my favorite ways to think of it. <clears throat> Lazarus is dead in the tomb. Jesus is there. Everybody's weeping. He himself is overcome with emotion. Lazarus has been dead to the degree his sister says, don't roll that stone away. Lord, King James, he stinketh. Last week I got in trouble for quoting the King James, but here, we stinketh, Right? So, so then Jesus stands in front of the tomb and he calls. Remember? Lazarus! And it is the call that has the power. It's the gospel that has... It wasn't Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He didn't have any way to respond. The call was the power of saving. So those whom he predestined, he also called. Let me give you uh, something else. Number nine. This is, uh, this is celebratory news right here. Number nine, God makes us right. It is God who makes us right. See the order of salvation there? In verse 29 and 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. That's in verse 30. Those whom he called, here comes the next word, he also justified. Justify. What a great word, justify. What do, we, what do we know about justify? We know that Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. That is substitution. He died as a substitute, and our sin was placed on Him, right? But that's not the only transaction in, in salvation. Our sin is placed on Jesus, but then His perfect life, the righteousness that when He fulfilled the law, His righteousness is put on us. That is, you want to... Uh, feel smart is the words imputed righteousness. Imputed. It is put on you. So that 
when you are now in Christ, when God sees you, He sees the perfect, crystal clear righteousness of Jesus. Regardless of who you are, what your past is, you're in Christ. Your sins have been paid for on the cross. That's the substitution. And you are now justified. That is a liberating truth. God makes us right. I'll give you the tenth one. Here's a tenth affirmation. Death, death doesn't scare us. When we're in Christ, death, do you see the chain? Look at the chain in verse 30. Okay. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That is to say, when you are in Christ, regardless of what happens to you, when you close your eyes the last time, you open them in the presence of Jesus with a, a, with a changed body in a new world, glorified. So, take those ten things, let me run through them again. God works. God works for the good of His people. God works for good in all things. God works, for, God works in all things for the good of those who love Him. Number five, those who love God are described, those who love God are also described as those who are called according to His purpose. Number six, God is omniscient, that is to say He knows everything. Number seven, God has a plan and it's a good one. Number eight, the gospel works, that is the powerful call of God. Number nine, it is God who makes us right, that is we are justified. Number ten, death doesn't scare us, we are glorified. Okay, with those ten affirmations, here come two questions that Paul asks in verse 31. There are the questions. What else is there to say? See what it says in verse 31? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see how all of that's building up to that last question that says, He protects us in all things. We are His. The picture of grace is not just that He saves you. He saves you and justifies, glorifies, and protects and preserves you are His, and He works in all things for your good. He does that for His people that He's called and that love Him. Common grace is a beautiful thing. I'm thankful for it. But common grace is there to press me to see the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. I hope that you celebrate His grace and walk with confidence for what God has done for you in Jesus. Let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. May we live our lives in humility and, and gratitude. Lord, we often wonder why would you save me? And yet I realize, Lord, it has nothing to do with me. It's all to do with your love and mercy. We give you praise and glory for it. We pray that you use us for good, that we would share the gospel with confidence, that you wake us up tomorrow at enough time to spend time with you, that you bring us back here Sunday ready to sing praises to the glory of your grace found in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. I'm dismissed.